This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, The Young Turks, Lacey Green, The David Pakman Show, NPR, The Pew Research Center, Economic Update with Richard Wolff, Stuff Mom Never Told You, Planet Money, and Cat Black. You often hear about the gender pay gap, but what does that really mean? There are different types of gender pay gaps. The national gender pay gap, pay gaps within industries, and pay gaps within organisations. The national gender pay gap is the percentage difference between women's and men's average weekly full-time equivalent earnings. Over the last 20 years, the national gender pay gap has hovered between 15 and 18%. This figure can be broken down into industry categories. Every industry has a pay gap favouring men, even female-dominated industries. This gap is much more than just numbers. Behind the scenes, we find a web of interrelated work, family and societal influences, including gender stereotypes of the work women and men should do and the way that women and men should engage in the workforce. Women and men work in different industries and different jobs, with female-dominated industries and jobs typically attracting lower wages than male-dominated industries and jobs. This is known as industrial and occupational segregation. The lack of women in leadership also contributes to the gap, with men more likely to occupy the highest paid jobs. And there is also gender bias, both conscious and unconscious, when a person is treated unfavourably in pay and other related decisions because of their gender. But how does this all relate to an organisation? Surprisingly, most organisations will have a gender pay gap. This gap can take three forms, like for like, by level, and organisation-wide. Like for like gender pay gaps occur when women and men in an organisation who are doing work of equal or comparable value are not receiving the same total remuneration. By level means looking at gaps within employee categories like managers. For a bigger picture, we look at organisation-wide gender pay gaps. Underneath, we again find a web of complex, interrelated influences. Like-for-like gender pay gaps are driven by conscious or unconscious gender bias. For instance, if men receive higher starting salaries, bonuses, or pay rises unrelated to performance. This same bias can lead to part-time staff not having access to the same career opportunities, inequality in women's promotion rates, and negative outcomes when women negotiate salaries. This and a lack of flexible senior roles contribute to less women in higher levels of an organisation, widening the overall organisation gap. Organisations don't set out to create gender pay gaps between what women and men earn, but the gender pay gap persists. Addressing this gender pay gap ensures women and men in your company who are doing work of equal or comparable value will receive the same total remuneration. More information on each of the gender pay gaps and what can be done to address these can be found on the WGEA website.
Microsoft has a new CEO. His name is Satya Nadella. And recently he was speaking at a conference called the Celebration of Women in Computing Conference, which sounds like a lot of fun. So <laughs> you're was, the worst. I mean, okay. So he was there and um, he was talking about, you know, how women can excel in their jobs. And one person asked, you know, what women should do if they're looking for a raise. And his answer was controversial to say the least. Let me read you what he said verbatim. It's not really about asking for the raise, but knowing and having faith that the system will actually give you the right raises as you go along. And that I think might be one of the additional superpowers that quite frankly women who don't ask for raises have. Because that's good karma. That'll come back. Because somebody's going to know that's the kind of person that I want to trust. That's the kind of person that I want to really give more responsibility to. And in the long term, efficiency things catch up. I don't know what that means at the very end. Yeah, not the most eloquent ending. Yeah. Um, now, as a boss, I totally agree with him. <laughs> okay, look. So, but, but that is a partial defense of him. I know that sounds funny. Okay, hold on, hold on. Let me explain. Okay. So as a, he's the CEO of the company, he doesn't want anybody asking for a pay raise. Yeah, like he's like, oh, please don't, please don't ask for a pay raise. Super hassle, inconvenient. Leads sometimes to like paying more, which is good. That's what you ask the pay raise for. Sometimes it leads to a separation from that person from the company. Okay, mm -hmm. it's like so. It's a giant pain in his ass. He's like, trust me, there will be great karma if no one ever asks for a raise again. Right, so now he happened to be uh, answering the question specifically about women, so that's where you get into trouble. Okay, yeah, that's and, really stupid. And people were really upset. Look, don't tell people that they shouldn't ask for raises. I don't care if it's a man or a woman, but that problem specifically. Um, affects women because men are more likely to negotiate their salary. Men are more likely to be aggressive in asking for raises. Women feel a lot more timid about that, which is part of the reason why there is a pay gap, right? And so that's something that you should address in a responsible way. Is what I'm saying controversial? It's true, right? Mm -hmm. Like, look, I'm a woman. I don't like freaking asking for raises or negotiating. That's why I have an agent. Mm -hmm. My agent negotiates that stuff for me because I can't do it, mm -hmm. right? So, Well, it's a uncomfortable process for every, everyone. And yeah. you know, of course, we don't want to overgeneralize, but there are studies that bear out what Anna is saying, so yeah. that's why people are co uh, concerned, and that's why they ask the question in the first place, right? Now, but for him to give this kind of load of BS, honestly, yeah. uh, to the a conference about women in computing, I mean, there's a lot of incredibly smart women in that room who are not going to be buying that. <laughs> One of those women uh, is moderator Maria Claw, and she disagreed with that statement. She said that it was. Um, uh, not the right way to go about things. Do your homework, Claw advised women in the audience, and start contrast to Nadella's advice to trust the system. Don't be stupid like I was, because apparently she didn't ask for raises, and that actually harmed her and her bottom line. Mm -hmm. So I like the fact that she was able to get in there and say, no, this is terrible advice. Now, of course, he got the criticism, and uh, he sent out a company-wide email apologizing. And here's what he had to say. I answered that question completely wrong. I believe men and women should get equal pay for equal work. And when it comes to career advice on getting a raise when you think it's deserved, Maria's advice was the right advice. If you think you deserve a raise, you should just ask. Okay. And then uh, I'll fire you. Yeah. Now, in the beginning, he had sent out a tweet about how he was 
inarticulate. Yeah. Like that's the new way of saying like, oh, I guess I have to apologize, but I don't really want to apologize, yeah. right? Uh, and then later he was like, okay, this is a full blown mess. I'm in a lot of trouble here, yeah. and I'm getting some pretty bad karma. Yeah. <laughs> so, let me go ahead and correct my own ass and yeah. put out the statement saying, no, 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 you don't understand. Oh my God, I am totally, 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 totally sorry for that. Okay, now it's good. already know that I have a 16 year old brother. This is him. He's basically my favorite person on the planet. He's up there on the list of reasons why feminism is important to me. Boys face a number of pressures related to their gender. For example, pressure to be physically tall and muscular, to push down feelings, especially fear and pain, to never cry or be vulnerable, pressure to be into sports or to have manly hobbies, to prove yourself using violence or intimidation to solve problems, to prove your manhood by having lots of sex, learning to see women as sex objects and struggling to have meaningful relationships with them. Pressure to be one of the guys, to make harmless jabs at each other meant to establish dominance. Pressure to be the protector in a relationship, never the protected. To be the breadwinner, the handyman, the money manager. To pursue physically demanding, dangerous, or even violent jobs. Pressure to be the leader and to always have the answers. Is this sexism against men? Sexism is about exclusion and unequal power in society. It's about discrimination between individuals that bleeds into the workplace and into the law. It's about shaming, belittling, and devaluing the feminine. Notice how many of the pressures that boys face come down to defining themselves against women. I'm a man because I'm not emotional, like women. I'm not physically small, like women. I know how to throw a ball or even a punch, unlike women. So much of the pressures that boys face in the world come down to the expectation that they not be like girls. These gender-specific pressures are a side effect of sexism. It's one version of masculinity, one way to be a real man that we impose on boys in a million subtle ways all throughout their lives. And the effects of that are serious. From men who have been told to repress their emotions so long that they can't physically cry anymore, to men who are left emotionally stunted in their relationships, caring fathers who can't get custody because nurturing is a girl thing, men who were raped and not believed. A real man? A real man wants sex all the time. He must have liked it. Version of masculinity is also connected to homophobia. Gay men are demonized because they're stereotyped as feminine. They like to take care of their appearance, they like to dance, they sleep with men. Too much like women. It's also uncomfortable when men date men or women date women. Who's the woman in the relationship? Who's the man? How do relationships without gender roles and gendered power dynamics even exist? <sighs> and you want to go a step deeper, it's connected to transphobia as well. Transphobia stems from fear and insecurity about people violating gendered norms and hierarchies. Violence against trans women is especially common because she's seen as a man who's lowering himself to the level of a woman. And all that is where feminism's like, oh hey, 
so this is kind of BS. And it's actually terrible for society. There's more than one way to be a man or a woman. We all have a combination of feminine and masculine traits. It's part of being human. Let's teach boys and girls to value equality, respect, nonviolence, instead of power, dominance, and aggression. Let's build a world where boys and girls can feel, can cry when they're sad, where we accept that emotions are part of being a human being, and we teach boys and girls to manage them in healthy ways, where anyone can be the stay-at-home parent and it's no thing, where you could choose to wear a dress or tux and no one cares because it's just clothes, where women and men could be nurturers and protectors, nurtured and protected, where girls and boys can be leaders, where you can be strong sometimes and weak other times, a full dynamic human that can't be shoved into a box and told who to be. Obviously, the fact that women and girls face inequalities is reason enough to stand up against sexism. But let's not forget that sexism also affects men and boys. It affects gay men, lesbian women, trans folk, everyone in between. Understanding how these inequalities and attitudes permeate our society and working to correct them is in the best interest of everyone. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. The Supreme Court has declined to overturn a lower court's ruling that an insurance company was within bounds when firing a breastfeeding mother because men can also lactate. Thus, it was not a sexist or gender-based decision. This is a story involving nationwide insurance company employee Angela Ames, who sued when she got back from maternity leave. She said, I need to be able to uh, pump breast milk. And they said, oh, yeah, we don't have a place for you to do that right now. You can go and use some room for that. And it turned out that that room had other people in it, and it didn't even have a locking door. And subsequently, she was actually uh, uh, let go. Uh, she was actually forced to resign. If we're going to, uh, I want clarity this evening. She wasn't let go. She was dictated a resignation letter, which she was then uh, coerced into signing. And the Supreme Court agreed with the lower court's decision that it's not sexist what they did. They are not discriminating against women because men can also lactate. And this, to me, is one of the most ridiculous explanations I have ever heard, Lewis. Men lactate sometimes because of a medical condition that is not desirable. It is a disease or a, or a pathology, not as part of normal child-raising function. It seems absurd to give this explanation. Uh, you just it sounds like you're just playing games when you when you give an argument like that and it's it's embarrassing i i don't understand how it can come to that uh if you if you want to take an argument like this 
you could apply it to so many different things. Yeah, I mean, uh, what, what about uh, it's not discrimination to fire someone for being black because white people can get tan, right? That that seems mm -hmm. to me like the same, the exact same thing. Exactly the same thing. Um, and it's okay not to. Uh, it's okay to fire someone because they're Jewish because a Christian could convert. To Judaism. That's exactly right. I mean, it's yeah. just anybody could be Jewish, right? So it's not really firing someone based on their religious beliefs. It's just one of the most bizarre decisions I have ever heard. Did anybody ever tell you you have kind of a childlike voice? Oh God, your voice is so annoying, it's so squeaky, it's so high. Frantic, grating, obnoxious. Take a shot of whiskey, that may help your voice like sound more rich. A woman's voice is not authoritative, people will not believe her. I got this letter in the mail, it's written on a note card, and it basically tells me that I sound like a Kardashian sister. Talking While Female, part of NPR's look at image and the changing lives of women. Okay, so why do women sound like they do? A lot of the pitch of a woman's voice is going to be driven by how tall you are and how much hormones you have. Women are smaller on average, and we have smaller voice boxes. You know, if you can imagine a big bass drum or a small drum. And studies have shown that lower-pitched voices are perceived as more competent. Wait, what? We did a study looking at voting behavior. We simply said, here's voice A. I urge you to vote for me this November. And here's voice B. I urge you to vote for me this November. Unvaryingly, people chose the lower-pitched voice. So the lesson is talk lower? So there have been many female candidates who have been coached up that way, right? There's the famous story of Margaret Thatcher. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. Mm -hmm. It's a lowering, not a raising. But there's really a limit to the degree you can do that. And if I were to try to speak in my lowest register in a sustained way, I would sound ridiculous. And that actually leads to vocal fry. So what is vocal fry exactly? That's what happens when anyone drops their voice to its lowest register. It tends to fry or crackle or pop. Our own studies have shown that both men and women tend to define the vocal fry voice as untrustworthy. And what is the deal with uptalk? Basically, this is ending a statement as if it were a question. You're going to go down the street and you're going to make a left, right? So the uptalk is a way of saying, I'm continuing follow along with me. How do people in studies perceive uptalkers? They say things like, well, this person has no confidence. They're timid. They're deferential. So people don't like our voices or how we use them? We seem to have this biologically driven judgment that lower pitched voices connotate stronger, more trustworthy, more competent people. Maybe we can keep that in our minds when we're listening to someone speak in a high, squeaky, up-talky voice, and our brain goes, this is an idiot. 
This is a person who is not very smart. This is a person who doesn't believe what she's saying and has no confidence. In fact, those qualities have nothing to do with this person that we're listening to. So, what do you do? If you think about it, it just will make you crazy. I don't have vocal fry. Well, maybe I did just there. I don't know. I I did try to use a lower register of my voice. You know, for business, I try to sound more official. Hello, this is you know. I don't think that I should have to change my voice. I would like to think that people are capable of listening to the content of what I'm saying. I have to find other ways to get people to take me seriously, and maybe I won't wear bows in my hair anymore. I'm gonna up talk. There's gonna be some vocal fry. Everyone can deal. Today's young women are starting their working lives at nearly equal pay with men, but there's no guarantee that they will stay this close in the years to come. A new study by the Pew Research Center looks at how the pay gap between women and men has narrowed, but persisted over the last 30 years. More than 30 years ago, a woman earned 64 cents for every dollar a man earned. The difference in earnings, or the pay gap, was 36 cents. Since then, the pay gap has shrunk. Now, women make 84 cents for every dollar men earn—a 16 cent gap. And each new group of young women has narrowed the gap even more. Let's take a look at the young women starting out in 1980. While women overall earn 64 cents for every dollar men earn that year, young women could expect to make a little more—67 cents. Taken at five-year intervals, each successive group of young women has started out at a higher level, steadily narrowing their pay gap with men the same age. By 2012, young women early in their working lives earned 93 cents for every dollar their male counterparts earned. These groups of young women also started out with a narrower pay gap than the pay gap for all working women. Why is the pay gap narrowed? There are several reasons. Women are better educated and more active in the workforce than they used to be. Many of them have moved into higher-paying occupations traditionally dominated by men, and men's earnings have fallen. Also, many workplace barriers and discriminatory practices have eroded over time. But the pay gap has also persisted, and in more recent years, it has narrowed more slowly. Let's take a closer look. Let's look back again at the 1980s, where working women of all ages made significant gains and closed the pay gap by 11 cents. But in later years, women did not make as much progress in closing the pay gap. Because of this overall pattern, young women who started out in the 1980s have done better over the course of their lives compared with later groups of young women.
The young women who started out in 1980 built on the rapid progress of that decade and narrowed the pay gap with their male counterparts as they aged. And a young woman starting out in 1985 also benefited from the strong overall gains for women during this decade. She maintained about the same pay gap with men over her working life. But as progress for women overall slowed, the women starting their working lives in 1990 saw their pay gap with men widen slightly over time. Young women starting out in 1995 lost even more ground relative to men as they aged. And so did the women starting out in 2000. No matter what their pay gap was when they started, all groups of women have moved toward the same pay gap. We don't yet know what the future may hold for today's youngest group of women who have been in the workforce for less than a decade. So why does the pay gap persist, and why do newer groups of young women fail to hold on to their early gains? Women are still mainly responsible for child and family care. Many of the mothers in our survey say they've taken a significant amount of time off from work, reduced their hours, or quit work to care for a child or other family member. Women also remain more likely to work in lower-paying occupations than men do. For example, male-dominated science and engineering jobs pay a median hourly wage of thirty dollars. While female-dominated administrative support jobs pay less than fifteen dollars an hour, gender discrimination may also contribute to the pay gap. Our survey found that women are more likely than men to say they've been discriminated against at work because of their gender, and both women and men say more needs to be done to bring about gender equality in the workplace. To learn more about the attitudes and experiences of women and men at work. Read the full report at pewresearch.org. Percent of women in the prime age, 25 to 54, that work in Sweden, 83 percent. In the United States, 69 percent. That's an enormous difference. What's going on? Why do women? And this, by the way,、uh, France, Germany, all of them are much higher. In the percentage of the women in their society who have regular jobs than in the United States, and it didn't used to be that way. Twenty-five years ago, it was the other way around. So the United States has really deteriorated. The United States is a society unlike other advanced societies, where the proportion of women in the workforce has gone up. In this country, it has gone down, and the results of research give us the answer. The most famous research done by Professor Claudia Golden at Harvard,、uh, and she had a paper earlier this year printed in the American Economic Review,、uh, the major journal in the economics profession in this country.、Uh, but her research is cited in many other articles in many newspapers. So here is the gist of her explanation: In all other advanced countries. There are many more supports 
to enable women to go out to work than there are in the United States. That's it. That's the answer. Let me give you an example. There are financed daycare centers for children. There are direct subsidies to families to help care for children. There are paid maternity leaves, paid paternity leaves. There are social welfare uh, supports where welfare workers help you in your home if you wish. Across the board, the answer given everywhere is that women in other capitalist advanced societies get supports from their governments through the tax system and through social spending that they don't get in the United States. They can afford to go to work. They can make the choice without sacrificing their children and without sacrificing their families. And they make that choice once they are free to do so in those conditions. American women explain that they can't afford it. They cannot pay the private costs of it. And the bottom line, therefore, is we simply have to choose, and we choose not to work. It's not what we would want, just like with the men. It's not what we would want. It's our second best. So this society's kind of capitalism that refuses to fund these things pays in the damage to the individual men and women and the damage to the larger economy that comes from it. of stereotypes about women based solely on the shape of our body, whether that's our height, our hair color, or even, yes, the size of our boobs. It's a jazzy boob. According to the Cultural Encyclopedia of the Breast, which is my favorite encyclopedia on the planet because woman's breast size speaks volumes about her. No pun intended. At least if you're a firm believer in stereotyping. Research has found that people tend to judge women with smaller breasts, like these proud A-cups, as hardworking, moral, modest, confident, intelligent, and athletic. Probably because it always just looks like we're wearing a sports bra. <laughs> Meanwhile, people tend to judge women with larger breasts quite differently, assuming them to be popular, confident, and sexually attractive. But why is there that difference in intelligent stereotyping of small breasts versus larger breasts. This isn't just something that exists in the pages of the Cultural Encyclopedia of the Breasts. This is actually something I've heard from a lot from large-breasted stuff Mom Never Told You fans who are sick and tired of people assuming that they are idiots based on their cup size. Commenter Jonna, for instance, said, I'm an E-cup and I have had people on class assignments tell me not to worry about doing any work because, quote, with boobs that big, I'm probably already used to having others do everything for me. They'll follow up with, that's probably how she passes all of her classes with A's. What? Inez said, being a busty woman myself, I do find that people generally have a tendency to judge my intelligence based on this fact. Another thing I have found is that an effective way to combat this is to only wear tops that have high necklines and are more loose fitting than I would prefer. 
<laughs> How fun! From Cecilia, I've always been academic, but when I was a brunette A-cup, people had no trouble with that. Now that I decided I like being blonde and grew to a double D, people say, wow, I didn't know you were smart. You don't look it. Lizzie said, as a young woman with a double D chest, I for sure think that I get treated like an idiot. How dare I have a large breast and be smart? How could you possibly have things up here? No, that doesn't make sense. Nope. Double D Paula says she deals with this all the time. When I ask questions, I get totally different responses depending on what I'm wearing. If I'm wearing something a little more revealing, I get dumbed down responses and get called honey and sweetie, etc. If I'm wearing a high collared or boxier shirt, I get legitimate responses to my questions using the correct terminology. Sometimes it's the exact same people both ways. <laughs> my mind exploding. And there were even more comments like this, all about this bizarre brain boob stereotyping that goes on that I personally was not aware of because as an A-cup woman, no one has ever looked at my boobs and said, oh, you must be a total idiot. Let me talk down to you. But now that it is firmly established that this happens and quite frequently and does not feel very good at all and often makes the person talking down to those boobs look like a real idiot? Can we just stop it? First of all, there is no scientific correlation between the size of one's breasts and one's intelligence. And also, the only thing a woman's boobs should say about her are, maybe sometimes it's a little cold in here. Maybe I'm, uh, I've got pregnant boobs. Maybe I really like them, so I'm showing a bit of them off today. And... Sticking with our current obsession, House of Cards, our House of Cards theme, there's this scene in season two where the hero, anti-hero main character, Congressman Frank Underwood, a guy who's obsessed with being at the top of the political leadership, he sits down with this junior congresswoman, Jackie Sharp, talking to her about a possible promotion. And listen for the dynamic between the two of them, between this powerful man and this junior congresswoman who's given a chance to rise up the ranks. Have you ever considered serving in the leadership? I figure that might be possible eight, ten years from now. Well, what if I suggested that you could serve in leadership this term to replace me as whip? You're being tapped for VP. Let's assume that's true. Well, that makes sense. But me as whip? Yes. A third-term congresswoman. A universally admired incumbent who also happens to be a war veteran. Webb's next in line. Or Buckwalter. Mm-hmm. So just consider that for a moment. See what just happened there? This is classic. 
She's being offered the job, and the congresswoman demurs. She says, "Who me? No, I'm not ready. There's all these other guys in line." And this happens in the real world, and we know this. Women know this. All the studies people have looked at management say that women routinely undervalue themselves in a negotiation like this. Ashley Milntite's a reporter working with Planet Money this month, and she brought us our next story, story number two, which is all about how researchers back up this feeling, how the research shows that women are just bad at negotiating things, and also offers some advice about what you can do about it. Emily Amanatula is a management professor at the University of Texas, and she became fascinated with the dynamics between men and women pretty early. She grew up with three brothers. She was the only girl in their gang of neighborhood kids. When she went to graduate school, she found a lot of the classic management advice was aimed more at her brothers than herself. Once you start to learn, especially competitive negotiation tactics, you realize they're pretty at odds with how women generally comport themselves and how they're expected to comport themselves. Amatula started to look closely at women's strengths and weaknesses, and they certainly seemed familiar. To very much a high degree, I am the woman that I study. I don't like to self-promote. I feel uncomfortable in situations where I have to negotiate on my own behalf. Amalatula wanted to find the source of that squeamishness. She began talking to other women about their experiences at work. Again and again, she heard women say how difficult it was to advocate for themselves at the office. But something else kept coming up. They had no trouble speaking up for colleagues. So Amanatula decided to set up a research experiment. First, men and women had to negotiate a starting salary for themselves. The men did better than the women. Then each of the subjects was asked to negotiate a salary for a friend. And what we saw was that, on average, women who were negotiating for themselves threw out a counteroffer that was seven thousand dollars less than women who were negotiating for someone else. Again, when the women were told to negotiate for a friend, they bargained just as hard as the guys. Women are not bad negotiators; rather, they're really quite savvy at negotiation. They just don't always use those skills for themselves. So, what's really going on here? There's quite a literature on this. Several studies show when women are direct and assertive during salary negotiations, it puts managers of both genders off. They see the women as pushy, and they don't want to work with them. And women know they're expected to be likable. It's a common story. I talked to Miriam Kraus. She's an academic. She remembers her first salary negotiation out of graduate school. She was desperate to come across well. There's the awareness of I'm going to be working with these people, and you don't want to jeopardize their good opinion of you. So she picked a number she hoped wouldn't offend anyone: twenty-two thousand dollars. And I got a call from the the contract office, and the very nice woman there said something along the lines of, "Are you sure this is the number that you want? Are you sure you don't want to ask for more than this?" She did end up asking for more, but to this day, she wonders how it can be less painful. So, how can women negotiate as successfully for themselves as they do for others? One piece of management advice is basically to remind women they're rarely negotiating just for themselves. They should bear in mind they're often supporting parents or a spouse or their kids. Maggie Neal teaches negotiation at Stanford Business School. When she navigates a new employment package, she thinks of her retired husband, her three dogs, five horses, and fourteen chickens. That's a lot of mouths to feed, and I'm responsible for them. Essentially, she's asking for more money not just for herself, but for her spouse and all those animals. Another piece of advice that Neil has is to reframe the whole idea of negotiation. 
We really need to think about negotiation in a completely different way. Walk away from this notion of this adversarial putting on the armor, getting ready to do battle perspective. And rather think about negotiation as problem solving. Always think, what do you want? What does the company want? And how can you help each other? Here's what it sounds like. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? <laughs> good. First of all, congratulations on the offer.、Uh, This is at NYU's Stern School of Business. Students Jake Singer and Hansini Sharma are learning negotiation skills through role play. In this case, the female recruit is offered a salary of eighty-two thousand dollars. Listen to how delicately she counters that. So I'd like to kind of talk about salary.、Okay. So I was looking more at like. Ninety-two, ninety-four, in that range. Just、mm-hmm. knowing what industry standards are, how do you feel about that? So that's unfortunately a little bit more than we're able to to offer you. But ultimately, Sharma comes away with a slightly higher salary and a lot of the benefits she was angling for. She kept pushing carefully, using language like "Would that be possible?" or "How does that sound?" If you have to rock the boat to get what you think you deserve, then. You should do it, but I think there's a right way to do it. You don't have to be rude. And an interesting thing happens when you learn these skills. Sharma told me she actually likes to negotiate now. In addition to hearing Ashley here on Planet Money for the next couple of weeks, you can also find her on her own podcast, The Broad Experience, where she talks about women in the workplace. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently-owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at BestofLeft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once, and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but seven to eight percent of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism: equal pay day. There's a stat most people are aware of. On the right, of course, they do backflips and employ non sequiturs to try to refute it. And on the left, we rattle it off automatically whenever anyone says men and women are equal these days. Data shows that women in the U.S. earn approximately 25% less than their male counterparts. Still, right now, in 2013, women's earnings were 78.3% of men's, up 1.8% from 2012, according to the census. That 78.3% number is for white women, according to the National Committee on Pay Equity. African American women earned 68.1% of all men's earnings, and Latinas' earnings were 60.4%. Four of men's, so far less than their white counterparts. Even if we just use the white women pay equity gap, the numbers are staggering. In 2013, men earned an average of fifty thousand thirty-three dollars, and women came in at thirty-nine thousand 
157, a difference of over $10,000 a year. Just think about what you could do with 10 grand. According to the Institute for Women's Policy Research, neither women's nor men's earnings improved much from 2012 to 2013, the most recent numbers available. Their wage gap fact sheet states, quote, if the pace of change in the annual earnings ratio continues at the same rate as it has since 1960, it will take another 45 years until 2058 for men and women to reach parity. The biggest awareness day for the pay gap is coming up. The National Committee on Pay Equity started Equal Pay Day in 1996 to illustrate how many days into the new year women would need to work to equal what men earned the previous year. In 2015, the date is April 14th, so women would have to work all of 2014 plus the first three and a half months of 2015 to match what men took home in 2014. Social media will likely use the traditional hashtags of equal pay and equal payday with people sharing stories and statistics. Wearing red, possibly with a selfie or two posted on your networks, symbolizes how far women and minorities are in the red with their pay. You can also visit the What You Can Do tab at payequity.org anytime to track legislation, contact Congress, and find out how to do an equity audit of your business. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If closing the wage gap and achieving parity matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about equal payday via social media media so that others in your network can join in. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how you make a difference. In this fickle world of change. So these past couple of weeks, I've been really diving into feminist topics, and feminism is one of those things that I really avoided talking about on my YouTube channel because I know that it really att- attracts like a certain amount of, you know, blowback. And even with my GamerGate video, I got a lot of anti-feminists attacking me. Even though GamerGate is about ethics and gaming journalism and not anti-feminism, I got a lot of that shit. And of course, that's kind of, you know, opened my eyes up to this bizarre world of anti-feminism that exists on the internet. There are some people who have devoted entire blogs into criticizing and attacking feminism. And it's really interesting because you can tell that these people have, like, never spoken to a feminist. They just know that, you know, they don't like them. So the other day I discovered that there's this tag called Menemist Twitter. And what it does is it seeks to parody feminism to show just how bizarre and crazy feminism is. Instead, what it actually does is point out just how little men know about feminism. So in this video, I'll be reading you guys a couple of Menemist Twitter tweets and responding to them accordingly. Now, what I've noticed from a lot of men who criticize feminism is that almost everything they talk about refers to a romantic or um, sexual situation that, they have, that they've had with a woman, and Menemist tweets are almost exclusively that. Why don't guys under six foot get a chance? Why can't she open the door for me? And my favorite. Why do men have to spend their hard-earned money on dicks? 
Why can't we get asked out and picked up and fed? I like free food too. <laughs> and this is their criticism of feminism. Now, of course, as a feminist, I find this all very, very ironic because what these men don't seem to understand and what I've noticed a lot of men who criticize feminism don't really seem to understand is that feminism is already fighting against these things. See, there's a reason why men are expected to open doors for women and pay for meals on dates. And that's because women are viewed as the fairer sex. And because women are viewed as the fairer sex, they're also viewed as being less competent. Because they aren't considered to be as competent as men, there's this entire situation set up to where men are more likely to be employed than women. In fact, if you were a woman at one point in time, you weren't even allowed to get your own job, let alone have your own money. So a tradition has been set where men are expected to pander to women and pay for their meals on dates because they can afford to do those things. Feminism is not about men paying for our meals and opening our doors. It's about being able to decide that we want to open up our own doors, have our own jobs, and have our own money. And maybe one day we can take you out and get you that free meal. Oh, but fragile masculinity. Another thing I've seen are these parody images of these body positivity memes that have been going around that are geared towards women of size. This one says, this is sexy, this is not. Real men have curves. This is a parody of one of the many body positivity memes that's been floating around. And while I don't believe in throwing skinny women under the bus and calling, you know, curvy girls real women and thin women not real women, I think that it's important to examine, you know, a lot of the, fe the feelings and thoughts behind these memes. These memes exist because women from a very young age are taught that their body is their worth. They're taught that the prettier you are, the more likely you are to be successful. So from a very young age, they learn that their appearance is their value. What this results in is many women of size desperately hating themselves, and they're constantly being told that they're not real women from the media and from other women. So memes like this fill a void in the media. They tell women of size that they are gorgeous, and essentially tell skinny women what they're being told for their entire lives, that they aren't real women. Now, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with throwing skinny women under the bus, but I think it's also important to recognize that thinner women are the standard. And because of that, a lot of women of size have a lot of um, anger towards skinny women. That all being said, while I understand that this is a parody meme, I think that it's also important to acknowledge the fact that men do struggle with body issues. Issues that, by the way, body positive feminists are already addressing. The difference is that very rarely are men made to feel that their value as a human being is directly impacted by their size. There's a reason why when men talk about their size, they usually talk about getting a date. And when women talk about their size, they discuss being respected as human beings. So out of all of the things that I saw looking through the men in this hashtag that pissed me off, this was probably the one that really got under my skin. A rape prevention poster that says, just because you made him ejaculate doesn't mean that he wanted it. Circumcluding his penis without asking for consent equals sexual assault. Don't be that girl. Now this poster is made as a response to the Don't Be That Guy posters that were created in order to remind guys that sex without consent is sexual assault. This seems like a really simple concept to me, but apparently people need posters to remember this. What a lot of anti-feminists seem to think is that 
feminists do not think that men can get raped, and they also don't care about male rape survivors. And I'm here to tell you that that's just absolutely not true. As a rape survivor myself, I will always sympathize with other survivors, regardless of their gender and the gender of their attackers. Anti-feminists seem to think that we think that women cannot be rapists, and the only one making that argument is you. I find that anti-feminists always use male survivors to make grand points about how men can get raped more than women, and the thing about that is, is that that's very true, but you're not actually telling the full statistic. Men are certainly raped more than women. But men also are far, 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 far more likely to be raped by other men. Prison rape alone skews the numbers in favor of men being raped more often. And I think it's important that when you're making that point that men get raped more than women, you also have to realize that you're pointing the finger back at other men. Because realistically, women are not as likely to rape men as men are. And when men are raped by other men, they're usually really hesitant to report because they're afraid of being seen as gay. Of course women can and do rape men, but it's far, far, far less likely. With that in mind, let's look at how other men respond when a man comes forward about his rape at the hands of a woman. When Megan Mahoney was caught with a male student, a bunch of guys chimed in all over the comic sections on Facebook with things like, lucky little bastard, and telling him that he should have kept his mouth shut. One guy even said that if his son had come home and told him that he was sleeping with his female teacher, that he would congratulate him. This is how society views men who are raped by women, and this is why so many men do not report their rape. And the sad thing is that these guys commenting on this article are the same guys behind this menomous Twitter hashtag. It's frustrating to me that anti-feminists will use male rape survivors as pawns in their conversation and then do absolutely nothing to aid and care for male survivors of rape. Not to mention that men getting raped does not invalidate the fact that women are raped as well. They're both still raped. Neither of these things cancel each other out. They're both issues that need to be addressed. Again, I don't care what gender you are. If you are a rape survivor, I'm here to support you. If you are a rapist, I'm here to prosecute you. Feminism is called feminism because while yes, it's about the equality of the sexes, it also recognizes that women need the most attention because of how women have historically been oppressed and told to stand behind men. I'm a feminist and I believe that there are certain men's rights issues that are worth discussing, but almost every one of those issues leads back to misogyny and how society views men and how society views women. Feminism helps men too, and I wish that men would sometimes spend a little bit less time getting on Twitter and creating um, hashtags and more time actually speaking to feminists. You know, there are many waves of feminism. I always talk about this in almost every video I make about feminism. There are many waves of feminism. Not all feminists are, are rad femmes. You know, not all feminists identify the same way. You can be a feminist and then still criticize feminism. I do it all the time. It's possible. And with that all being said, let's just log off of Twitter every once in a while, you know, give it a little break. I know that I personally can get on Twitter a little bit too much, so let's just log off of Twitter. You know, go outside, speak to each other, you know, have conversations, you know, not strange hashtags. <laughs> anyway, on that note, always remember and never forget that you are beautiful.
from Raven, and uh, I know I left you a couple messages about the vaccination thing, and again, with an autistic son, this is a hot button topic for me, but after listening to her voice message, um, she made some great points, and there's something I think I'm really not clarifying well. <clears throat> I am not against vaccinations at all. I'm, in fact, for them. But I think that we truly need to start looking at the amount of things that we're vaccinating for. I understand her point of correlation does not cause causation. This is very true. The problem I have with many progressives is they're too busy trying to say that vaccinations are the most important things or the most important thing. All the science proves that it's, they're not connected. This may be the case. I just want to point out the gorilla in the room that no one is talking about. All this money and all this research went into making sure that the vaccinations kept rolling, that people are still getting them. None of that money, or I should say, not enough of that money, is going into finding the true root cause or causes of autism. If the money could get funneled into that direction and we truly found out what causes autism, it could put the whole thing to bed. But ironically, I don't think Big Pharma is going to make money on getting rid of autism. I know it sounds, sounds very conspiracy theory like it's just the point I would like to bring up in the discussion. The other one that uh, Raven made, which is excellent, is that the only people who should be exempted are those who are medically at risk. And she brought up that some children have allergies to some of the things in the vaccinations. My problem there, and I don't even know if she's realizing she's saying this, how many people know that their infant has all these allergies until they get the vaccination? Unless you are going to run your child through a battery of tests, no one is going to know. No doctor is going to tell you to put your child through all this. And these are just some loose ends that are missing from the conversation that a lot of us are just glossing over without taking the time to see the loose connections. Anyway, Jay, thanks. Hey, Jay, this is Tyler from Kentucky. I wanted to weigh in for a minute about vaccines and add one more quick comment to the discussion on vegetarianism. You see, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day about our Senator Rand Paul's comments on vaccines, and we started to debate whether those who argue that vaccines ought not to be mandated are quote-unquote anti-vaxxers. And it made me wonder if arguing with someone who believes in having a choice for vaccination is ultimately futile. You see, he knows the science of vaccination, and he knows that a certain number of people need to be vaccinated in order to protect those who can't get the vaccination, you know, people who have cancer and such. 
But he believes that ultimately it's more dangerous to give government the ability to mandate people to get vaccinations than it is for letting measles, mumps, rubella, and all that to run rampant. So I tried arguing with him about it. First off, by saying that state governments have been mandating people to get vaccinations since the 1800s. And for another, it's really not all that different from governments mandating you to have car insurance. You know, car insurance may not exactly help you in the, in the, you know, post term, and it may be a bit of a hassle to get it, but it lowers rates for everyone else, and it helps people who actually get an accident. So it's a benefit for society in that way. But he really just blew that off and just said, you could skirt the law and not get insurance, whereas with a vaccine, you're actually getting something put in your body. I then tried to use an inspirational argument, like, you know, we wiped out smallpox. Why couldn't we do that with measles, mumps, rubella, that sort of thing? And again, he brushed it off and just said, the vaccines are working well enough. And at that point, I decided I didn't want to continue that conversation. That whole viewpoint that you having a, you have to have a choice seems to me so pernicious. You just... It undermines vaccination in general because if you give people the option to be stupid, enough people are going to be stupid and not do the, the thing that's healthy and safe for whatever reason. And it's going to hurt the rest of us. It's going to put kids with cancer in danger. And that just seems downright evil to me. So it made me wonder today after the vaccination episode, is it ultimately futile to argue with these people? that think that giving government the mandate to vaccinate people is more dangerous? I don't know. It's, it worries me. But on vegetarianism, I just want to thank everyone who called in recently and you, Jay, for reposting episode 796. The conversation in that episode have uh, forced me to stop vacillating over the issue of becoming a vegetarian and decide to, yes, to do it. It's been weighing on my mind for a long time, and I'm grateful for the show and for everyone who called in for finally making me realize that I couldn't convince myself to continue eating meat. So I'm going to start making the transition today. So uh, thank you, Jay. Thanks to all the callers. Thanks for this wonderful show. Uh, hope you have a good day. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Wade. You know, on this uh, vaccination issue... Let's be real here. The anti-vaxxers are the same vein of people as truthers, birthers, grassy knoll type people. What I mean by that is that, you know, they know more. They know the truth. It's us that, that you know, we haven't researched enough. We've been duped by the mainstream media, you know. That, that's, that's really the same type of people we're talking about here. Now, the birthers and the truthers and the grassy knoll type people, they don't really do any damage. I mean, yeah, they've got the hour-long annoying YouTube videos and the weird websites that get 10 hits a month. They don't really do a whole lot of damage. You know what I'm saying? But to the anti-vaxxers, well, they're a special kind of dumbass because they're actually fucking with other people, okay? I cannot believe that in measles, which was virtually eradicated, is now back because Jenna McCarthy, who I have no idea why she's even famous, said, yeah, vaccines cause autism. Oh, well, goddamn, I guess that's that's living proof right there. You know, you, I'm so happy that this show 
didn't really try to debate the issue because it's not worthy of a debate. I'm glad this show practically just made fun of, of, of the anti-vaxxers because that's really all it's worth. We have to stop. Just, just call it for what it is. It's ridiculous. That's what you're, you're being ridiculous. Call it for what it is. I don't want to have a discussion with an anti-vaxxer. I don't care where they're getting their info at. I mean, just look, read history, for God's sake. Just a brief study of history will tell you that before vaccines, thousands, millions of people used to die quite frequently due to diseases. Vaccines take care of a lot of that. Would you rather be in this country or would you rather be in Somalia? We know the answer. You'd rather be here. Okay, so just get with the program. There's a reason why people promote vaccines. There's a reason why it used to be common knowledge that they work pretty well. I'm sure there's some risk to them. There's risk in everything you do in life. But my God, the benefits vastly outweigh the possible negatives. So for the love of God, vaccinate your fucking kids. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, I have to tell you what I came across today. For, for those of you in the, you know, deep in the feminist movement or just like really interested in the subject, this probably won't be news to you. And it wasn't news to me in the sense that I was surprised. I wasn't surprised, but I just hadn't come across uh, the, the website. I'm sure there's more than one, but I came across the Women Against Feminism Tumblr today and just took a, a short horrifying scroll uh, through the page. And I, I wanted to share some of this with you because, you know, in today's episode, we, we tried to clarify some of what feminism is about, not just how it relates to women, but how it relates to men as well. And uh, I, I think that some things were covered on today's show that actually hadn't come out in previous uh, feminism episodes of mine. So, you know, I, in, in a sense, it feels like a feminism 101 type episode to have to like explain what this thing is, but also kind of covered new ground. So, you know, maybe we're making progress. Maybe we're back to where we started. It's hard to tell, but just to give you a sense of, uh, of some of the misguided notions of what feminism is, uh, this is like a series of pictures that they've put on the, where, you know, a person writes something on a white piece of paper and then holds it up and takes a picture of themselves. That's what this, uh, Tumblr is. So just a couple of examples. First woman writes, I don't want to be associated with modern feminism. Some of my most treasured friends are men and I will not stand by while they get discriminated unfairly. Make love, not war. Next woman says, I don't need feminism because, one, men are not the enemy. Two, feminism is not compulsory for women. And three, I have the same rights as men. Third woman writes, feminism was supposed to be about equality, not about hating men and white people. I don't need feminism because not all men are rapists and not all white people are racist. Uh, very true. Very true. A couple last ones. I don't need feminism because I enjoy being feminine. 
excellent, congratulations, uh, not in conflict with feminism. I do not need feminism because I have my own voice and opinions. I do not need a movement to speak for me. Sexism is gender neutral, and men have doubts and fears just like women do. Also very true. We, we covered that in the show today. And then just last one, I don't need feminism because it's hurting men and it's not helping women. So I could not help but be reminded of, uh, as is so often the case, an absolutely spot-on article in The Onion, because if, if you are ever questioning any topic, you can pretty much look it up in The Onion and, and get, uh, get your answer. So they have they, they published an op-ed piece in The Onion, which is pretty much a perfect encapsulation of the logical conclusion you come to if you follow the logic of, of these, uh, these women against feminism. So this op-ed writer writes satirically, to be clear, Like any other socially conscious woman, I am a firm believer in gender equality, ending workplace discrimination, making reproductive health care affordable. I've championed these goals my whole life. They're important to me, and that's why the feminist movement frustrates me so much. I'm sorry, but I simply cannot and will not support feminism if it means murdering all men. I understand why some people might believe the only way to advance women's rights is to slaughter every man on the planet, but that sort of radical, explicitly homicidal position, which for all I know is a fundamental aspect of feminism, is exactly what makes me hesitate to call myself a feminist. Do I agree with closing the pay gap, ensuring universal access to birth control, and ending the objectification of women? Absolutely. And if that's all feminism were about, I would get on board without any hesitation. Assuming feminists start advocating that we hunt down all the world's men and boys, load them into trains bound for death camps, and systematically massacre them solely on the basis of their sex, well, that's where I draw the line. Consider the men in your life. How would you feel if they were murdered? I have a loving father, two brothers, a wonderful fiancé, not to mention countless male friends, each of whom I know for a fact respect women. I don't want to kill them with my bare hands. I don't care how noble the goals of the feminist movement are. Should joining that cause require me to strangle every man I care about until the life slowly drains of his body, I just don't want to be a part of it. While some of my friends identify as feminists and I respect their right to do so, I don't have to agree with everything they say just because I too am a woman. If, for example, they were to enact a policy of eradicating the male threat at its source by mandating the forced abortion of every male fetus the moment its sex is determined, I am under no obligation to condone this practice, even if its implementation would further women's rights. If that's what the word feminist means, I don't want that label applied to me. Those are the kinds of things that turn me off to feminism completely. In all honesty, there's nothing I want more than to live in a truly equitable society, and I'm not trying to discredit those working to attain it. But think about it. If one of feminism's guiding principles is, possibly, to end discrimination by marching each human male into a massive industrial furnace heated to 1800 degrees Fahrenheit to ensure his complete incineration, then is that really equality? I'm not so sure. Maybe in centuries past, when women in our culture were treated as little more than the property of men, such a strategy made more sense. A hundred years ago, when American women still lacked the right to vote and had very limited employment opportunities, the idea of having every grandfather, father, and young son kneel on the ground while women shot them execution style, which could, in my estimation, be central to the feminist cause, 
may have held more appeal, but that time has passed. The bottom line is that I can never get on board with feminism. Its message is just too inextricably tied to the idea that all males should be violently culled from our species. Or at least that's what I gather. So as is almost always the case, The Onion completely nails it. I'll link to this article in the show notes, or you can Google it. It's titled, I Don't Support Feminism If It Means Murdering All Men. And uh, call in with your comments. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That's absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained